0: Part 3, Chapter 5 of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tchaikovsky The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borham. Chapter 5 the holly-tree. I know a holly-tree, a grand old holly-tree. It may be that there are other holly-trees with leaves as green and berries as bright, but if so, they are unknown to me. The holly-tree whose praises I am singing stands beside the lovely lawn of a fine old up-country residence. Its leaves always look as though they had just been cleaned and varnished, and the brilliant berries are a dazzling riot of red. I used to wonder why the birds are so fond of the holly-tree. They are no more comfortable among prickly leaves than I am, and everybody knows that the berries are not particularly palatable. But the other day Mr. J. W. Gofton let me into the secret the holly-tree is a sanctuary. The tree, says Mr. Gofton, sheds a great many of its leaves after the summer has set in. These remain on the ground in thick profusion, and so formidable are their hard and pointed spines to the feet of such bird-hunters as the cat, the weasel, and the fox, that these creatures dare not attempt to walk across them. Consequently, the birds soon find out that they can secure immunity from danger in a holly bush, and throughout the autumn and winter, a vast number of sparrows, linnets, buntings, blackbirds, and some starlings spend their nights in peace and quiet among its branches. It is pleasant enough to lounge on the lawn on a sunny autumn afternoon, and amidst the trees that are strewing all the ground with russet and gold to admire the old holly-tree in all of its bravery of scarlet and green. But it is even more pleasant, when the darkness closes in, and we draw our chairs up to the fire, to reflect that out there beside the lawn a score or more of timid shrinking feathered things have found a peaceful sanctuary, secure from all their foes, under the kindly and powerful protection of the holly-tree. Now the holly tree is not alone in this. The law of sanctuary is written everywhere. You chase the mouse until the frightened creature dives into its hole, and you know that your task is hopeless. The tiny thing has found sanctuary. You hunt a rabbit, till at last it vanishes into its burrow under the long gorse hedge. You can follow it no further. It has found sanctuary. In his Fields of France, Mr. MacDougall tells how, in the merry month of May, the stag defies its keenest pursuers. Among the picturesque fields and forests of Fontainebleau, the hounds and huntsmen meet. The scent is found, the chase opens gaily, but soon the flying stag takes to the valleys, and there a beautiful fault frustrates the sport, for thick as grass, the lily of the valley springs in all the breaks and shady places the scent of the game will not lie across these miles of blossom the huntsmen are in despair and the deer still deafened by the yelp of the hounds beholds himself befriended by an ally more invincible than water or forest oak by the sweet and innumerable white lilies that every Maytime send the huntsmen home Feeding among the fragrant flowers, the gazelle exults in delight and safety, far off up the valley. The trembling creature hears the baying of the disappointed pack, but he has found a sanctuary amid the perfume of the petals. Mr. Seaton and Mr. Stuart White have both told of the way in which the hunted animals of the great African and American forests will fly for sanctuary to the camps of men every night says mr white a fawn used to sleep outside my friend's tent within a foot of his head it was seeking protection from the wolves by which its mother had been killed this most attractive law pervades the whole of life it is everywhere i can find no stick or stone in the solar system upon which it is not engraved But are these furry and feathered things the only creatures in the universe that need a sanctuary? Surely not. Peep into the nursery or playground, and you will see that from our earliest infancy we ourselves seek its beneficent protection. In every game there is a home or a base, or a fen or a barley, or a touching of wood. A sanctuary of some kind whereby the tired player may find respite from pursuit? And later on, why do we love at times to creep away to some lonely wood or quiet field or solitary beach? Is it not that after the din and the dust we find in the very stillness a sanctuary? As Mr. Herbert Tucker sings, a sanctuary within the woods I know, a sheltered glade, by the glad-blue o'erspread, Close-set and tall the pine-trees round it grow, By their shed-needles it is carpeted, And to its gracious solitude I steal, When my vexed spirit feels the stress of things, Like some hawk-harried bird That hides to heal its bloodied plumes And rest its weary wings even within the wondrous mystery of my own complex nature i am continually coming upon unexpected operations of that lovely law that i discovered among the branches of the holly-tree what happens for example when i go to sleep a man spends his day in toil and worry and anxiety then at night he throws himself upon his couch and the most wonderful thing happens He closes his eyes, and where is he? He has left his worries worlds behind. He has found sanctuary. Or a man hurts a limb. The pain reaches a certain point, but beyond that limit his anguish cannot go. The limb becomes numb. He finds sanctuary. Or in sudden fear or mental agony one loses consciousness. We faint. It is a way we have of leaving the difficulty behind for a while. We plunge into oblivion and find sanctuary. And then again, turning to the social side of life, what a beautiful sanctuary is home! When a man is tired and feels that the world is hard, he turns away from his tasks at sunset, and goes home. And when he turns that handle and sets that door between himself and his cares, and loses himself in the love of a wife who worships him, and of children who clamour to his knee, he feels that he has found a sanctuary indeed. And what shall I say of friends? God made a beautiful thing when he made friendship. All day long we are on our guard. We keep people at arm's length. We set a watch upon our lips. We speak with reserve. But at last we meet a friend, one to whom the soul is knit as the soul of David was knit to the soul of Jonathan. Reserve is thrown to the winds. We have secrets no longer. We unbosom ourselves with freedom. In the abandon of perfect friendship the heart finds its sanctuary. Or look in still another direction. Professor David Smith tells of a great lesson that he learned as a young minister from his old teacher and friend, the eminent Professor A. B. Pruce. He introduced me, Professor Smith says, to my first charge, and that Sunday night, as we sat in my study, he said to me, "'You will get no inspiration from your surroundings here. See that you seek it from your books.' i remembered his counsel and i found it good the years which i spent in that quiet parish proved very profitable many an evening i would come home sick of petty jealousies and fretted by trivial narrownesses and would get into my study and behold i was in a large and wealthy place and in the fellowship of the immortals my study was the most sacred and wonderful place on earth to me it was my refuge and my sanctuary. My sanctuary, mark you. And it was probably with this reminiscence of his early ministerial days in mind, that Professor Smith penned for us the following verses. I bless thee, Lord, that when my life is as a troubled sea, I have remote from its rough strife harbours to shelter me. I bless thee for my home, where love her sweet song ever sings and peace spreads like a nesting dove her gentle brooding wings and for this chamber of desire where my dear books abide my constant friends that never tire teachers that never chide in my london days i used to turn aside sometimes from the bustle and turmoil of the city and stand for a moment in the spacious quiet of St. Paul's Cathedral. How delectable that stillness seemed as one crept in from the roar and tumult outside. And scattered about the great interior, one always saw seated here and there several with whom the world had gone very hardly. There was a haggard expression in the face and a hunted look in the eye. They had turned into the sacred precincts for a moment's breathing space. They had found sanctuary. It is but a picture and a parable of the church universal. She offers shelter to the battered and the baffled and the browbeaten throughout the wide, wide world. Indeed, it may be said that the church is not only a sanctuary herself, but she literally dots the world with sanctuaries. They spring up automatically wherever she goes. They respond to her message, as the flowers respond to the spring. What are your hospitals but sanctuaries for the diseased, the damaged, and the broken? What are your asylums, your infirmaries, your orphanages, your almshouses, your whole network of benevolent and philanthropic enterprise, but so many sanctuaries to which the distracted, the aged, and the unfortunate may repair? Like the fairy, who transformed all that she touched into silver, Christianity, by some subtle magic of spiritual alchemy, turns everything that it touches into sanctuary. See how it laid its hands upon the heart of our own great empire and turned every inch of our soil and every ship on our seas into a sanctuary for the slave. Slaves cannot breathe in England. If their lungs receive our air, that moment they are free. They touch our country and their shackles fall no matter said the eloquent john philpot curran no matter with what solemnities he may have been offered upon the altar of slavery the moment he touches the sacred soil of britain the altar and the god sink together in the dust and he stands redeemed regenerated disenthralled but as is the case with so many subjects the greatest word ever spoken about sanctuaries was one uttered by one of those old Hebrew prophets who always seemed to probe the inmost heart of everything. A glorious high throne, he says, is the place of our sanctuary. A throne, a sanctuary, it seems self-contradictory, and yet, when you come to think of it, the throne is ever the best sanctuary. Sir Walter Scott has outlined this great truth for us in the tender story of Jenny Deans she was tempted to save her wayward sister by a lie. It was a very little lie, a mere glossing over of the actual truth. The slightest deviation from actual veracity, and her sister's life, which was dearer to her than her own, would be saved from the scaffold, and her family honour would be vindicated. But Jenny could not, and would not, believe that a lie could afford a real refuge, and she told the truth. The whole truth, and nothing but the truth." and then she set out for london along the great white road she trudged until her feet were bleeding and her exhausted form could scarcely drag itself along the dreadful miles but on she pressed until she saw the lights of london town and still on overcoming every barrier until she stood before the queen and then she pleaded as no mere advocate could plead for effie with what passion what entreaties What tears did she besiege the throne! And before the tempest of her grief and eloquence, the queen yielded completely, and gave her her sister's life. That is the glory of the gospel. It is the introduction of the shuddering soul to the highest tribunal, and there at the throne, in the august presence of the highest, the stricken heart finds its solace, its satisfaction, and its sanctuary it is as when the linnets cluster together on the smooth bark of the great holly branches knowing that a thousand leafy spear-points protect them from all prowling beasts of prey it is as when the hunted terrified and breathless deer enters the leafy glade to which the hunters cannot come the soul that seeks the throne has found sanctuary true sanctuary at last end of part 3 Chapter 5